0: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.
1: Hello, welcome to another episode of History Hack. We're going across the other side of the pond today. Uh, we have with us Tyler Wenzel, who is currently a serving Canadian military officer. He's a historian and a lawyer and an author. I mean, is there a, something he's not? Um, He's published his most recent book, which is called Not for King or Country, Edward Cecil Smith, the Communist Party of Canada, and the Spanish Civil War. And funnily enough, that's exactly really what he's here to talk to us, is about the Canadians in the Spanish Civil War. Hi, Tyler. Hi, Elena. Very excited. We've done some Spanish Civil War stuff, but we've not had a chance to look at the foreign legions in the Spanish Civil War. So this is something completely new for us.
2: Yeah, it's, uh, it's not really well known in Canada, let alone elsewhere.
1: Oh, brilliant. So we're well, going to be the first ones to start reporting about it. Excellent. <laughs> Excellent. So why don't we just kick off with the first question? Uh, we're going to talk of this, I've just said about six times, we're talking about the Canadians in the Spanish Civil War. Um, tell us, how many Canadians were there in Spain at that time?
2: So at the very beginning of the Spanish Civil War, at the time of the uprising in July 1936, there were there were already a handful of Canadians in Spain. There were some Canadian business interests in Spain, like there was the Barcelona Attraction Light and Power Company, which was a Canadian-owned enterprise. Uh, there was a contingent of Canadians at the People's Olympiad in Barcelona. And there was at least, there was a couple, but the main one... Um, Canadians who were just on their way somewhere else. Like there was a gentleman named Bill Williamson who was actually on his way to Russia when the when war broke out. So he joined a, a local militia. He was already there. But there really wasn't much of a connection between Canada and Spain. But in spite of that, by the end of the war, nearly 1,700 Canadians went to Spain. Um, they weren't all combatants. The vast majority of them were combatants. Um, who fought in the international brigades. So 1,700 is kind of an insane number when you consider that the Canadian population at the time was 11 million. Um, We didn't have much of a Spanish diaspora population or a historic relationship with Spain. There wasn't really much connection between Canada and Spain, but 1,700 people went um, out of 11 million. And that's also a pretty big number when you think that Um, There were 2,800 Americans who went to Spain, and that was out of a population of 128 million. So the the proportions of Canadians who decided to go to Spain was much higher than Americans, and it's not really fair to compare Canadians and Americans to European countries, just given the constraints of geography.
1: Do you know why a lot of them moved to Spain? Because that's just really odd that such a wide range of people went.
2: Yeah, the main... It was mostly about ideology and politics uh in that the nationalist uprising against the elected republican government you could look at that conflict and almost all of these like all but single digit Canadians fought on the republican side uh they were drawn to it for a number of reasons but mostly because you could look at this conflict and see what you needed to see with regards to the change that you needed to see in the world, right? This was a conflict where the Republic was fighting fascism, a nationalist uprising. So you could look at that as being a communist hardliner and say this is a, an anti-fascist endeavor. You could look at it as being a liberal or a social Democrat and say this is a pro-democracy endeavor. So you had this whole swath of people from the center to the left that, that could find uh, an ideological reason to go and participate in the conflict.
1: So what percentage of them were born outside of Canada and how does that complicate things?
2: Yeah, well, Canada is an immigrant country and really has always been. And But the numbers uh, are, are higher than you would expect, even in spite of that. So with the best information we have, about 78% of the Canadian volunteers who went to Spain, they were born outside of Canada. And most of them were relatively recent immigrants, um, arriving sometime between 1925 and 1930. Uh, The biggest groups were Ukrainians, Hungarians, and and Finns. So the majority of them were were new Canadians, relatively recent arrivals. And this complicated things in a number of ways. Uh, One was repatriation. When it came time for them to come home, because they needed to prove uh, nationality, there was no such thing as Canadian citizenship at the time. Uh, We were still all British subjects. But also what happened to a Canadian when they got to Spain. So if you were a Polish Canadian, you're just as likely to end up in a Polish unit. Um, But most of them did go to the predominantly English-speaking 15th Brigade. Okay,
1: so let's bring in the Communist Party of Canada. What role did they play in the Spanish Civil War?
2: The Communist Party of Canada was absolutely instrumental in getting those numbers of uh, Canadians to Spain. Now, that's not to say that people didn't have motivations that were completely separate from the Communist Party, but the fact was the Communist Party did the heavy lifting when it came to organizing people. You could have all the ideology, all the politics in the world, but ultimately you needed to physically get to Spain. And that's not necessarily an easy thing to do from North America. Um, So we mentioned a few of the the things, the people that were already in Spain, but uh, there were also a lot of Canadians in just in Europe for a variety of reasons. There was a bunch of peace conferences on the go. And a really important one was Tim Buck and he was the leader of the communist party of Canada. He went to Spain to see what was going on. He did tours of the front lines, that kind of thing and he committed to the communist party in Spain that he would organize a contingent of 250 Canadians. And when he got back to Canada in late 1936, he found that there was a gigantic appetite for supporting the Spanish Republic. Um, Independent of his efforts and his promise, there was a grassroots level effort to organize Southern Slavic communists to go fight in Spain, Um, There was a volunteer movement among the unemployed workers in Winnipeg. There was a program to send a medical mission to Spain. uh, And that was a rare cooperative event between the communist party and the cooperative Commonwealth Federation, which is, which is sort of like our socialist party. Um, So they did the underground organizing of sending all these volunteers. Some went on their own, but the vast majority were, uh, screened by the communist party organized by the communist party got their tickets got their directions to the safe houses and this was something they were really good at because the, the communist party in canada had actually been an illegal organization until june of 1936 and the spanish civil war started in july of 1936 so they were really good at operating underground so ultimately about 76 percent of the Canadian volunteers were members of the Communist Party um, or the Young Communist League and some of them you know they may not have been dyed in the wool communists some of them may have just joined the party because it was the quickest easiest way to get themselves to Spain
1: so you've mentioned them literally helping people get to Spain and save houses can you do you have an example of how that would have worked
2: yeah, so I'll use uh, Edward Cecil Smith, um, the the subject of my book. Uh, he lived in Toronto, and Toronto was the main hub for sending Canadian volunteers to Spain. So he was a member of the Communist Party, um, and he had military experience. So military, if you had military experience, they 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 wanted you. They were actively recruiting. If you were both a party member and had military experience, a uh, strike against him was that he was married and they initially didn't want married men to go because then they would have to um, devote, devote resources to taking care of um, spouses and children. Uh, but he requ- he, you make a request and your local party authorizes you to go. So he received that authorization. He wrapped up his affairs. Uh, if you didn't have it, you were issued a suitcase, and you were given assistance uh, getting a passport. So they would get, like, a, a friendly doctor to sign as a witness saying they'd known you for the right amount of time. Uh, you'd get a medical inspection, and then you would get your train ticket, which would take you either to Montreal to set sail or New York to set sail. Um, there were third class steerage tickets, mostly on White Star Lines, that would get you as far as Europe. You'd get directions to go to another safe house you'd move through the safe house network normally end up in paris for further screening um and it wasn't until you were on the ship by the way that you moved in groups larger than three to five people because in canada by the summer of 1937 this was illegal but they sort of operated the system as if it was illegal or about to become illegal the entire time you get to europe you move through the network of guides uh, eventually, you're brought to the French side of the Pyrenees. You're matched up with guides, and those guides, in, over the course of the night, march you through the Pyrenees by foot through the old smuggler trails. Uh, once you get into Spain, you're picked up by trucks and trains, moved all the way to Albacete, which was where the International Brigade headquarters was. And you go through a screening process, you get interviewed about your language, you get interviewed about your military experience and you get sorted into your unit, and you either go to a training camp or to a frontline
1: unit. Wow, so that wasn't such a straightforward process, for example, getting on a boat and then just set sailing straight to Spain. I mean, you're talking about weeks and weeks worth of travel, right?
2: Weeks and weeks, um, moving through Uh, hostile territory, right? You're doing something that's illegal from the Canadian point of view, the American point of view, the British point of view, the French point of view, Uh, could get picked up by a police officer. Any stage of this, this travel, you don't really know where you're going or what's happening over the next, you know, you know, your next location, but you don't know the one after that. So yeah, it was quite a, quite the process, but I think it was also sort of galvanizing for the volunteers Like if you go through that process, you've got to be left with a sense that this is a, you're part of a, you're part of a movement, right? You're part of this global exercise of quote unquote worker solidarity. I think it really gave them this, this, this sense of belonging to something bigger than themselves.
1: Do you have any evidence of failures, for example, or somebody that tried once, twice, maybe three times to do this?
2: Not a lot of that. Um, Surely there's some cases where people did get hung up somewhere in Europe, but in terms of uh, getting out of Canada, most of the volunteers getting a passport, even though it would be stamped as not valid in Spain, they were, once you had the passport, you could get into the U S you could get to Europe. That part wasn't especially difficult. Uh, There were some, instances of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police arresting a few people in Montreal that they strongly suspected were on their way to Spain, and they were. Uh, But I'm not really sure what initiated that arrest because for the most part, the RCMP very closely monitored the departures. They kept track of all the media coverage of who was in Spain and when they went. They sent uh, officers down to New York to get shipping lists, to cross-reference, to see which Canadians were leaving, um, when and where and how. When they came back, they kept track of those lists. And they were prepared to arrest the recruiters by the summer of 1938. Warrants were issued, lawyers were hired, because you used to have to hire Crown prosecutors. Uh, and they're about ready to arrest all the recruiters. But they, they, they didn't at the last minute. They decided that it wasn't politically wise to do so, so really, on, from the Canadian side of things, this whole process was closely monitored, but never actively stopped, even though it was against the law.
1: That's pretty interesting. I would have thought they just would have arrested everybody and just gone, no, nope, can't go, you're barred.
2: Yeah, I think it, it would have been a it would have been a fairly straightforward endeavor. They the lists that they have, because now you can cross reference between the lists that the RCMP generated and the their observations of the recruiting network. And you can cross-reference that with the Communist Party's records. And the RCMP definitely knew what was going on, but there was no political will to, to actually stop it.
1: So it starts to get more complicated now because we're bringing in linguistics. Why is this?
2: The linguistics are really important when you look at the Canadian... Organization because we had such a high proportion of immigrants, recent immigrants, um, most of whom spoke Northern and Eastern European languages. So by the time you got to Spain and you got sorted by your language, the Canadian product put into the process doesn't naturally create a Canadian unit that spits out on the other side there's this diffusion that happens that Polish Canadian might go to the Polish unit. That German Canadian might go to the German unit. Uh, So the Canadian unit, as we talk about it in Canada um, was never really a Canadian unit because of that diffusion. We had a North American unit, uh, Two briefly, which had North America had American names, and one that had a Canadian name. But we never really had a Canadian unit, and mostly had to do with that language piece.
1: So let's talk about the Canadian battalion itself. Uh, tell us a little bit more about it. And was it made up of Canadians? I think you're going to you're going to say no. I'm predicting you're going to say no.
2: Yeah, that's right. Um, <laughs> so there was there was a Canadian battalion in Spain. It was called the Mackenzie Papineau Battalion. Um, So that name Mackenzie and Papineau comes from the leaders of the upper and lower Canadian rebellions of 1837. So it was, it was helpful. It was created on the centenary, right? 1937 was when the unit was created. Um, So William Lyon Mackenzie, who was a Canadian rebellious figure and Louis Joseph Papineau, who was a French Canadian revolutionary figure. So you kind of, you cover that up Um, messaging that this is Canadian, like, bold, underlined, italicized Canadian and not a foreign endeavor was a really important messaging point for the the Communist Party. It was never really a true Canadian unit. It was more of a nod to the Canadian contribution uh, than an actual Canadian unit. There were two American units, two American battalions at the time, the Lincoln Battalion and later the George Washington Battalion. They were subsequently amalgamated and canadians were generally just put into those organizations as they showed up there were more americans and canadians and you know from the a lot of the time from the european point of view uh, what's the difference between a canadian and american they were just put into the same organization
1: oh that's not nice is it
2: there was some consternation about that about how different we are but that that idea that typically canadian idea being offended about being compared to an american ran headfirst into the worker's solidarity we're we're all one in the same and you should put those kinds of concerns aside uh, that's
1: actually that's interesting because i know now for example when i meet canadians or americans and you make an assumption for example a canadian is an american they get really offended or an american is i'm, I'm an american or i'm a canadian so that's interesting that things were eight people were able to put that kind of it's deep rooted, isn't it really?
2: It is. It is. Especially because culturally at the time, Canadians um, were probably more similar to, uh, to British than American. This was like radio was just being introduced. Um, magazines was, was certainly cross border um, comic books, that sort of thing. But the quote unquote proper Canadian in the English-speaking world at least, really looked to Britain for their, their sense of cultural identity. To be properly Canadian, was must be properly British. And Americans were, they were just different. There were cases where the Solidarity didn't really work out. Like the, uh, the Irish contingent was initially part of the British battalion, but they actually voted to join the Lincoln battalion. They did not want to fight alongside the, the British battalion. So there there no. were limits on that workers' solidarity piece.
1: I mean, I can see why um, after the podcast we've had on Irish history and what has happened between Ireland, Ireland and Britain, I can see why they chose to do that. It's completely understandable.
2: Yeah, and this was 1937, right? So like the the Easter uprisings were not... These were not distant memories. These were things of, uh, of living memory. Um, so go back to the, the Canadian battalion, quote unquote Canadian battalion. It had a, it had a Canadian name. Uh, it had increasing numbers of Canadians, but it was always a Canadian, North American, English North American, uh, Americans, Canadians uh, fighting together. But the number two company, Started as a fully Spanish company, um, the MacPaps had a number of Cubans. Part of the Cuban contingent came into the Mackenzie-Papineau Battalion, so you had this large Spanish-speaking contingent as well. And most of the officers were American. It, its initial slate of officers only had one Canadian as a company commander. All the other officers, commissars, and company command and above were Americans. And it wasn't until after their first battle that they got their Canadian Canadian commander. And after that, the propaganda largely focused on on that. Um, the The newspaper accounts really treated, really still tried to pretend that if a Canadian was in Spain, they were fighting in the Mackenzie Papineau Battalion. But it, it was that was never accurate. I feel a
1: little feeling a little bit sorry for those Americans, though you know, they want to be at least acknowledged, but they've been put in the Canadian sort of brigade.
2: Yeah, and vice and vice versa, and vice yeah. versa. Um, and this, but the, the worker solidarity piece is something that comes up in a lot of the American literature and the uh, American historians have kind of co-opted the entire brigade. I mean, so really? the, the 15th Brigade had... It it changed over time, but for most of its history, it was an American battalion, quote unquote American battalion, the Lincolns, a Canadian battalion, the Mackenzie Papineau Battalion, a Spanish battalion, and the British Battalion was always just kind of called the British Battalion. It didn't get a didn't get a fancy name. Um but the brigade was always the fifteenth brigade. However, uh American historians tend to describe it as the Abraham Lincoln Brigade, which is kind of unfair to all of the spaniards british and canadians that also served in that unit but
1: that's what us historians do really at the end of the day don't we just make things more difficult
2: yes wreck wreck the helpful narratives that help people understand these things and keep reminding everyone it's more complicated than that
1: exactly exactly
2: ready to pop the question
0: J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So tell us, how far did Canadians
1: advance within the International Brigade?
2: Not very far, not very far at all. Um, Edward Cecil Smith, who commanded the Mackenzie Papineau Battalion for most of his existence, he was promoted to the rank of major. Um, for some reason, the inter- the in the international brigade system, everyone was sort of a rank lower than you'd expect if you're looking at, at at other conventional militaries. So Cecil Smith commanded the battalion as a captain for most of the time and was promoted to major. At the end, whereas if you're in the British or Canadian military, you'd expect that to be a lieutenant colonel. Um, There were a handful of company commanders, but there were no other unit commanders, no high-ranking commissars. This was a military in which commissars still played a role, uh, and zero Canadians on the officer, Canadian officers on the brigade staff or higher. So the Canadians generally believe that this was because there was a correlation between uh, do getting promoted in the international brigades and a being a member of a communist party and B being a member of a highly influential communist party. So Canada was not that. So the Canadian leaders tended to be marginalized at the expense of the American leaders. um, And resources given to Canadians was always less than what was given to the Americans. For instance, the, uh, Canadian, um, news service that existed within the international brigades didn't have access to the transatlantic cable, whereas the Americans did. So they could send home news dispatches, whereas the Canadians were still mostly mailing things home. So I think there's some truth to that assessment. Uh, there, But it has to be balanced with the fact that the Americans and the British and other European contributions, they sent relatively high-ranking Communist Party members. They sent people who had more germane military experience to taking on leadership roles, whereas the Canadian contingent, generally they had limited military experience. Very rarely did they have leadership experience in the military and almost no high-ranking Communist Party members. There were some Lenin School graduates, but not a lot.
1: Do you know why that is? Why did they not send, in Lenin's terms, better troops?
2: I think that the Communist Party of Canada underestimated the degree of support that they were going to get for this endeavor. Uh, It didn't seem to be. I don't want to say they didn't resource it appropriately at the beginning, but Tim Buck thought he was going to be able to raise 250 Canadians to go to Spain. And now they've got 1700 Canadians that went to Spain. There wasn't much of a plan. Uh, There was no detailed plan about we'll send these people, we'll get these kinds of jobs. Uh, They had very little contact, very little influence on what was going on in Spain. So they sort of got who they got. They got mostly rank and file, and within that, they really tried to message, they tried to minimize the role played by new Canadians, by recently immigrated Canadians, and try and play up the role um, of quote-unquote old-stock Canadians, people with good British names, uh, people with good French names, and those were the people that they kept trying to push into the limelight so there, there, was no, there was no plan, there was no expectation that they were going to get these kinds of numbers. I think other political parties had a sense that this was a place sending their leadership to Spain, or at least some other leadership to Spain, was a good place for them to cut their teeth and prove themselves and to produce heroes that they could use in propaganda on the other side. The Canadian approach was much more ad hoc, and it kind of got away from them, I think.
1: I think the other side have the better plan, make yourself some heroes. Cause that's, I think that's quite logical. Don't you?
2: Absolutely. So uh, Edward Cecil Smith, the subject of, of my book, for instance, he, he went to, he was um, sort of a middle rank communist party member. And he was middle rank, not because he wasn't uh, proficient. He was middle rank because he kept getting in trouble and arguing with people and arguing about communist doctrine and, no, this is wrong. No, we shouldn't do it that way. So he was always kind of kept there. He was sent over to Spain. And he did not want to be an officer. He had no interest in that. And the Communist Party of Canada didn't even know he had become an officer or that he was the commander of the battalion until it was released in the New York Times. So they weren't making plans on who they wanted to push. They just sort of Like I said, they just sort of got who they got. They didn't identify leaders and say, go and you'll do well, with some exceptions. They mostly unfolded around them and they struggled to play catch up and to figure out even what was going on.
1: I know we're just jumping to the end here um, because they eventually get demobilized to the international brigades. And the Canadians are the last ones to leave Spain. First of all, why... I'm just completely messed up this question. I'm not actually reading. I'm making things off my head. So I'm going to get Alex to cut this. If yeah. <laughs> you just leave a few moments of silence, then she'll know where to cut it. <laughs> so we're leaving this, obviously, to the end. So the international brigades are demobilized. The Canadians are the last to leave Spain. Why?
2: So the Canadians were the last national contingent to leave Spain. There was a ton of, uh, of small groups, Of of different countries but for the most part the bulk of the americans had gone home the bulk of the british had gone home etc and that was mostly because these countries paid money they made contributions to to bring these these people home and that's not because they they supported the individual's decision to go to spain it's because getting the foreign volunteers out of spain was considered to be part of the peace process this was the This was supported by the negotiations between the Republic and the Nationalists and a League of Nations Commission was sent to Spain to to sort all the foreign volunteers. The Canadians didn't feel that way. The Canadian contingent didn't receive a a penny from the the federal government. They saw saw no need to do so uh, because these volunteers had left counter to Canadian law and they didn't want them to come home. So they just let them languish. And eventually it was the Canadian League for Peace and Democracy and the Friends of the Mackenzie Papineau Battalion, which was just a sort of a support organization, both of which were largely dominated by the Communist Party, that they raised the money privately and worked with the Republican government to get the rest of it, and then worked with the the railroads and the French government and the British government to go to Spain and shepherd these Canadians' home and the largest contingent had to they were on the last train out of Barcelona as the city was being attacked by nationalist forces and the other contingent had to march to the border march to the French border amidst all of the um, all the Spanish refugees and eventually got home and some were in prisoner of war camps for, for quite a long time afterwards but it was mostly because the Canadian government saw no need to participate in the repatriation process, whereas most other countries did.
1: That's not very nice, is it? I have no idea how to phrase that differently, but that's just... You're abandoning your own citizens, really.
2: Yes. uh, No, there there was obviously a lot of debate there because the RCMP, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, were against allowing... The external affairs didn't want to help in bringing these Canadians home. The Royal Canadian bounded police wanted to go one step further and said, you should not let any of these people get back into the country. If, if they show up on our shores, you should turn them back because they are dangerous and they left counter to Canadian law. And immigration came back with the position of, listen, RCMP, what you're proposing is a, is a conviction without a trial. Um, we do need to bring them back. And if we're going to charge them and try them, then that's a separate matter. But we need to let Canadians come home.
1: The Soviets, they always get involved in the narrative somewhere. Uh, How did they get involved in this one?
2: They were involved almost from the very beginning. And there's, there's three main ways that they got involved in Spain. Um, one was a, a military operation to support the Republic. The other one was the intelligence operation to gather information and otherwise pursue their own political ends and the other one was using the the third international the communist international so militarily um, this was a, a relatively low risk low cost of a way of opposing German and Italian expansion in Western Europe uh, it was a way to protect France because uh, if Spain falls to the nationalists uh, supported by Hitler and Mussolini, that's obviously a problem for the French, which means the French will be uh, a less than optimal ally in a future conflict with Germany. Uh, it's easy to lose sight of how much the Russians actually did provide because it was dwarfed by the German and Italian contribution. But the, the Russians provided advisors, machine guns, anti-tank guns, aircraft tanks, all that kind of stuff. And, and it's also important to bear in mind that this was their, kind of their first out-of-area operation the Russian army doesn't have a did not have a long history of deploying forces, even small ones, to places beyond its border regions. So this saw them deploying forces through the Mediterranean. The intelligence operation, the NKVD ran agents in Spain. They conducted assassination operations in support of the broader anti-trotskyism campaign, especially in Catalonia. Uh, they recruited Raymond Mercator who was a Spanish communist, who eventually was the agent who assassinated Leon Trotsky in Mexico. And he was traveling on a Canadian passport that came from a Canadian volunteer in Spain. They took that passport, repurposed it. It's one of the passports used to travel and other Russian intelligence agents used uh, Canadian passports. Uh, Ignacy Witzak was a Polish Canadian volunteer and His passport uh, was repurposed to get a Russian intelligence agent into uh, California uh, prior to the Second World War. And then there was the the Comintern role, the third international role in all of this, where instead of sending large numbers of Russian troops, which would be high cost, uh, high risk, well, we can send a small number of advisors, and through the Communist International mobilize foreign volunteers through disparate communist parties. And they got 45,000 or so foreign volunteers that way for the cost of, while we don't know how much the Russians contributed to that and how much was just uh, raised locally. Moscow gold was probably exaggerated from what the RCMP reported, but there was surely some of it. They provided the organizational impetus, probably not a lot of financial contribution.
1: So there have to be some sort of Canadian celebrities that take part in this. Are there any?
2: The, the first Canadian celebrity, uh, we don't have a George Orwell or an Ernest Hemingway or anyone like that, mostly because of that rank and file issue. They weren't sending a lot of, uh, uh, there weren't a lot of journalists who signed up. There weren't a lot of famous writers or anything. We didn't have that. The first Canadian celebrity volunteer in the Spanish Civil War was, uh, was not Canadian at all, Um, the first international brigade that was raised and fought in the outskirts of Madrid in November, 1936. Uh, He went by the name Ebel Kleber and Kleber was, he claimed to be a Austrian born naturalized Canadian, but the reality was he didn't actually have any connection to Canada. He was a Soviet intelligence officer, not a military officer, intelligence officer, Um, His real name was Moishe Stern, and he had done intelligence work both in China and the United States, but he wasn't actually Canadian, but he was widely reported as being Canadian, and he was probably a big factor in influencing all the Canadian volunteers in the early days because they saw a Canadian already in Spain, already making a difference, um, already promoting the values they held dear, and that that meant a lot. To the early volunteers
1: okay apart from Canadian celebrities there's got to be someone who's super famous so who was the most famous Canadian volunteer
2: the most famous Canadian volunteer bar none even <laughs> though he's not known not known to most Canadians most English speakers in general
1: you're gonna is, tell us about him now though aren't you yep
2: yeah. um, this is Norman Bethune Norman Bethune was a Canadian thoracic surgeon, secretly a member of the Communist Party of Canada. He had been to Russia and, and was awestruck by what he saw as being the quality of Soviet healthcare. And he went to Spain as a volunteer. He was not a combatant. He was a, he was a medical professional, but not... Not, uh, not the humanitarian, like we help everyone kind of way. He provided a mobile blood, trans- blood transfusion service for the Spanish Republican Army. And he was a celebrity in Canada. Um, there, was, there's a lot of, there was a lot of pacifist um, anger in Canada towards the Canadian volunteers who were fighting because that wasn't viewed to be the best way of advancing the cause. But every, almost everyone could get on board with uh, Norman Bethune running a mobile blood bank in Spain. Uh, but he's not really super famous for that. That's, that. He was a celebrity at the time. But the reason he became extraordinarily famous is because after that, he went to China and he was a field surgeon with Mao Zedong's 8th Root Army. So Norman Bethune famously met Mao. Um, he was a surgeon. He was close to the front lines. He, um, he lived with a lot of the hardship and danger of, uh, of the, the Chinese soldiers he was working with. Uh, and as with a lot of things, if you, uh, if you want to be really famous, you need to choose when and how you die carefully. And he died from sepsis, from cutting himself while performing surgery. He cut himself and he finished the surgery and he did other work and eventually it made him sick and he died. So, Mao wrote about him in his collected works, and he's the only foreigner referred to in that document. So, generations, generations of Chinese people are familiar with Norman Bethune. He is revered as a saint, um, virtually as a saint, um, among mostly mainland Mandarin speaking Chinese people. I've done some speaking and some of my research has to do with Norman Bethune. And uh, you speak at a a Canadian conference or an English speaking conference, and he's an interesting little story. I presented some of my research at a Chinese conference um, last year and through an interpreter and it moved people to tears. I've never had that effect on an audience. Just telling the the connection between my research and Norman Bethune, it's unbelievable how revered and well-known the man is, but Virtually unknown among English-speaking Canadians.
1: Well, Norman Bethune, you have been spoken about on our podcast, so hopefully that will give him a little bit of recognition. I mean, to be fair, he did something incredible. I mean, he was helping people at the end of the day.
2: Absolutely, and he was he was a skilled surgeon. There's a he developed new kinds of tools uh, for for surgery. He um, developed some new methods of conducting blood transfusion in the field. Uh, and he did some good humanitarian work at home in Canada. He was, the, the reason he came across in my research was because uh, Edward Cecil Smith's wife contracted tuberculosis from poor housing. And Bethune was one of the few skilled surgeons in Canada that, because we didn't have socialized health care back then, he was one of the few surgeons in Canada that would operate on poor people. And he removed um, Lillian, Edward Cecil Smith's wife. He removed one of her lungs. it's the only reason she survived.
1: Tyler, listen, thank you so much for joining us and talking about the Canadian battalions, uh, the Canadians in the Spanish Civil War, the not so Canadians, the Americans as well, They get a mention in there, Um, and all of these amazing things. We need to get you back on so you can tell us a bit more about this in the future. So thank you.
2: That would be great. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure.
1: Join us tomorrow because poor Zach White has been on so many of our podcasts talking about things that aren't his speciality and policing sharp cast members and being very polite where people act like loons all around him. Uh, But he is now finally getting a chance to talk about his PhD work, which is so interesting. He researches crime and punishment in the army at the time of the Napoleonic Wars. It was staggering what some of these soldiers got up to and the responses to it by the authorities. So don't miss that. Don't forget, you can become a patron of History Hack for as little as a dollar a month. Just go to www.historyhack.podbean.com. It will help us keep going in the aftermath of the coronavirus, and we would really appreciate it, as we would love to do so.
2: When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer.